So I'm really, really um, happy to be home and thank you all for coming. And if I sound, actually you're quite lucky because I normally talk really fast, but I've just come back from Bosnia um, from a conference called Wet Vagina and I haven't slept. <laughs> so I'll be talking very slowly in this kind of oversharing. So what I'm um, essentially going to do is just kind of talk about um, my, my activism and kind of like three kind of key moments which I've kind of overshared and kind of ch um, changed um, the conversational kind of achieved something. Some of you might be a little bit familiar and some people for security reasons, names might not be said. Um, so ultimately, um, 27 years ago this summer, I was subjected to an act which dates over 4,000 years. Um, at the time, I had no idea what it was. I don't necessarily remember whether it was painful, but I do remember the pain of trying to find um, answers and what that was like. I came back as a seven-year-old and I was told that's what happens to girls like me. I'm like, what the fuck does that mean? I have no idea. Um, I was um, in a hospital and I was treated but never necessarily explained to. And then I was told by those people that really supported that I should be ashamed of talking about something. And it was in 2010 when I finally stood up and said, hi, my name's Nim Kali and I'm a survivor of FGM. Ultimately, that wasn't because I wanted to change the world and I wanted to um, see FGM end in a generation, which I hope it will. It was because of the fact that I saw how complicit my silence was to the misunderstanding of this issue. I was um, volunteering with an organization in London at the time, and there was a young girl who had just come out of being sectioned because she'd um, had a traumatic experience with her FGM, and she was standing there talking about the fact that she wanted to go to France and get reconstructive surgery um, to maybe possibly have an orgasm and have like you know have sex and I remember standing there and saying do you know what I could actually solve this by telling her about myself by oversharing for the first time and I stood with her and I said you don't necessarily have to go to France in order to have an orgasm have you ever held hands with a boy and felt that tingle she said is that an orgasm I said no that's intimacy <laughs> And that is what you really need to build in order for you to have that experience um, of sex and pleasure and so on. So um, that was the first time I talked about my own experience. And now I'm just going to talk about three other times um, which I did the same thing. So um, Lisa Zimmerman, I'm not sure if she's still here. Um, so Lisa over there. So Lisa, um, so basically I'd been doing some work with the Evening Standard and a certain gentleman picked up the Evening Standard and asked his private secretary to send me an email. I got the email and I said, so-and-so would like to meet you. This is where I keep the names kind of silent. <laughs> but I think some people know who it is. Um, so um, so-and-so would like to meet you and talk to you about what he can do as Secretary of State in order to address the issue of FGM. Like, fantastic. This is great. I'm going to come meet you. I'm going to take Lisa with me. It's going to be brilliant because you're professional and we're going to be talking about professional stuff. So I sat down and he said, Nimco, tell me about FGM. And I said, well, ultimately, this is what it is, sir. It's the, it's the non-medical procedure practiced on girls, blah, blah, blah. But we need the Department of Health to do something about it. And he said, okay, that's really interesting, but what I really need to know, Nimco, is can girls like you have an orgasm? <gasps> Second over sharing. I said, well, sir, it depends on how good in bed you are. <laughs> <laughs> 
because ultimately it never really um like you know fails to shock me how men not all men but some men ultimately always want to kind of communicate about the issue of fgm through their penis it's nothing to do with your penis it's a, it's, a, it's an act which was inflicted upon us and it's about talking about that but that was great because in that moment he actually instructed his um minister to put her ducks in a row and do whatever needs to be done and since then we actually have real data in order to know how many women have undergone fgm sadly there's about 140,000 women in in the uk that are subjected to fgm but because of that act of oversharing, I know we will be able to um, end FGM within my generation. So the next one is about Marks and Spencers and actually getting, uh, like, you know, Bristol women um, from the Somali community and white non-FGM affected women talking. I was sitting around with two of my friends and um, my Somali friend said to me, do you know what, okay, um, these um, white women, what do they do with their penis? I was like, what are you talking about? She said, you know, well, they've never had FGM, so um, what happens when it grows? And I stood there and I said to my um, Caucasian friend, I said, hey, can you explain to my Somali friend how the clitoris uncut does, does not grow into a penis? And she said, oh, um, for Fosia, it doesn't grow into a penis. It's actually perfectly fine. And Somali friend said, I don't believe you. So, second act of oversharing. <laughs> <laughs> Broad mean Marks and Spencers. We spent 20 minutes in Broadsmith's Marks and Spencer's trying to look through every single pair of knickers to see where white women could hide this clitoris that turns into a penis. It didn't exist. We went for coffee, and those two women are now leading conversations about talking about intimacy and doing inter-community um, inter work. Um, third act, actually there's four acts of um, oversharing here. Um, the, thir the third act of um, oversharing, last year I got an email, and it's really interesting where, um, again, where certain men talk about my vagina. Um, it was David Cameron and Obama sat around and said, hey, you need to meet somebody who's got a, um, who might tell you about FGM. So there was a conversation about my vagina. I went to go meet Obama, and he stood there assuming as a president of the United States that he has nothing to do with FGM. So he tried to talk at me, saying, um, do you know what, it's really interesting, I really want to do something outside of uh, my presidential role, I really want to start the Obama Foundation, and I want to do things about FGM because it's such a horrific act, it's something is, like, you know, I can't even imagine it, so on. I stopped there and I looked at him and said, um, mate, you're Kenyan. So let me just break it down for you. Okay, I'm Somali, first generation Somali here to be born. But um, your mother, if your mother, your father, the, the father of the president of the United States came out of a mutilated vagina, he came out of a vagina which was subjected to FGM. Had it been, had you been a girl, then your father could have had a conversation with your mother about the fact about you being cut. Had your mother been the one that had been Kenyan, then you could have been born from a vagina that had been subjected to FGM. So as powerful as we think we, you are, you're only two generations away from being cut yourself if you were a girl. And that was one of the most, um, I think it was one of the most, um, the aroma, I want to talk about, how do you say when somebody smells amazing? It was anyway, it was a moment where I overshared, but his smell kind of took over because he smelled like um, lush. But uh, <laughs> 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 he, he smelled... He smelled, he smelled like lush, but uh, more kind of oil-based. I've, always, I've, always, I've been trying to figure out how to um, sum that up, but he smelled um, amazing. Uh, <laughs> and um, the, next one, um, the next one is talking about um, camel toes. <laughs> 
And if you're aware of, like, you know, the procedure of FGM, whether it's type, especially if it's type 3, where most of the labia is removed, it's that you get this thing where you don't necessarily have a camel toe. So, my, <laughs> so um, a very famous friend of mine was talking about the fact that, um, that she talking about the camel toe and so on. And there was this very amazing article that, that she wrote in the, um, in the Times. And I said to her, um, Catelyn, that's really interesting, but as, as somebody that has been um, subjected to FGM... <laughs> Um, I don't have that problem. And then my friend standing next to me, Amal, said, um, I think I might have a camel too. And I said, no, no, I just think that you might just be wearing, like, you know, bulky knickers. <laughs> <laughs> that was a moment. But um, one of the kind of really interesting things as well is the fact that, again, it's talking about... Um, Bristol is my city, and there's a lot of us that um, have these conversations about FGM as being something that happens in these far countries where it's about ignorance, it's about women not being educated. FGM is a very organised um, crime against gender. And one of the things that I'm really um, concerned about is how it seeps into our kind of culture through porn and how we now have designer vaginas and labiaplasty, which ultimately do not um, differ from the acts of why FGM happened to 200 million women globally in Africa and the Middle East. And this was the thing um, last week, and I've kind of upgraded my vagina from Topshop to this now. <laughs> but um, basically, I was having a conversation with, with a woman who didn't want to describe her experience as mutilation. And she said, well, I haven't been cut. Um, so she said, no, I, I have been cut, but, but, but my vagina hasn't been mutilated. I've got a designer vagina. Think of it as the Louis Vuitton of vaginas. Interesting. I said, mine is Topshop because the fact that I'm very British, but ultimately it was something that I don't necessarily think that was um, ethically produced. And even... <laughs> It wasn't, it wasn't very ethically produced, but it's something that I seem to wear on a day-to-day -day basis. So I think, like, you know, <laughs> our disposable, our disposable um, fashion. But um, having seen a lot of the young women that I see around right, right now, I think I might upgrade from um, Topshop to Michael Kors or whatever it is that you guys wear these watches. It's, I think that's what it is. And it's this kind of thing is that um, FGM and issues about our bodies and things like that have, have become... Uh, um, are seeping in through the back door. So we might think it might be a, a high brand um, Louis Vuitton because it's from um, Harley Street or because of the fact that she comes from a community which celebrates this and gives her the concept of choice. But ultimately, it is something that is produced, um, like, you know, without ethics and doesn't necessarily contribute to the society in which we live in. So um, I know that Bristol um, is going to be one of the first places where we ultimately will end the active practice of FGM. But in my kind of power of oversharing means that we can really come together and uh, one of the key things Holly was gone um, Holly's gone I said is that it's really interesting that somebody that's very single and I always talk about my vagina it's one of the most um, embarrassing things everybody sees me online and I am a little bit angry online but I'm not that angry in real life but what I really am is that I'm really grateful for the fact that this city where I met some of the young people from Integrate Bristol are who have been talking about this conversation and the fact that we could sit here today and talk about racism we could talk about um motherhood and we, we could talk about the Islamic State um, destruction of um, like you know um, historical sites and we can also talk about autism because FGM is not that dissimilar it sits within that sandwich and I might be somebody that has got, um, um, undergone FGM and when I first started this conversation it was a very hard one and it was a very painful one and I came from a family that was 100% affected but now I come from a, hundred, um, a, f a family that's 98% um, affected 98% um, affected by FGM with um, two nieces and a 
cousin who will never be cut. And my cousin um, turned eight years old um, last week, and she's the first girl in our family to reach that age without being cut. So I think what I really want to do is um, leave this on a very high note and to say that we need to keep talking about this place, which is... Um, so talked about and talked at but never necessarily really understood and never really shared and I think there's, there, there is no such thing as oversharing and there is no shame in it and I've always been told that I should be ashamed of my FGM but I'm more ashamed of being silent about it for a long time. Thank you very much.